Hey everybody, David here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode on the Diary of a Country Priest, the first two chapters. Before we get to that though, I want to let you know about two Name Your Price online conferences that the Searcy Institute has and that are coming up fast. First up is the 2023 Dwell Women's Conference, which begins on March 21st with inspiration from speakers like Close Reads' very own Heidi White, as well as Karen Kern, Nina Harris, Renee Mathis, Andrea Lipinski, and Katerina Kern. This conference will consider how to strengthen our communities from the most intimate, our families, to the broader community like churches, schools, co-ops, and friendships. It will contemplate how in community people can engage in the good work of nurturing our children in body, mind, and spirit. If you head over to searcyinstitute.org slash events, you can sign up today. And to reiterate, you can pay whatever you want, $0, $5, $10, $100, whatever. And you get to hear Heidi live, of course. And then you also get all of the recordings for free. So again, that is searcyinstitute.org slash events. And while you're there, if you want to, you can also see Another conference called a Cultivation of Virtue online conference. That's coming up in April. It's also a name your own price. And the speakers for that are, well, our very own Tim McIntosh here at Close Reads, uh, Andrew Kern, Greg Wilbur, Christopher Perrin, Wes Callahan, and many others. So if you want to, you can press pause on this podcast and head over to searcyinstitute.org slash events, or you can click the link in the description, or, you know, you can just type that into whatever device you use to, uh, you know, find stuff on the internet. So again, that is searcyinstitute.org slash events. And those are two different name your own conferences featuring close reads, stars, hiding in Tim are stars, right? I think so. All right, with that, let's get it over to this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing the diary of a country priest. Uh, this is a book that you love, right, Sean? I do love this book. And how many times have you read it? Uh, this is actually just the second time. Okay. And can you pronounce French names? Uh, no. <laughs> is that code for yes? No, because you said that super French. Lay sometimes. <laughs> we might need your so, help. So many times. Uh, just like say stuff in a vaguely, uh, weirdly, like bad Hercule Poirot accent and you'll be okay, right. right? Yeah, because yeah. I don't think any of us really know anything about French names. It's not a language <laughs> that I'm strong, strong about. Uh, this is a book that um, was published in 1936 by the French writer. Is it, I mean, Bernanos? How would you That's say how I've always you, said it. Louis, Louis Emile Clement or Clement Georges. Georges Bernanos. We're going to have to have one of our true experts, George, one of our true experts, uh, just get in the comments and let us know. Yeah. We got to find those folks. It would surprise nobody that, uh, Bernanos was a Catholic writer. Uh, and he was, uh, critical of the, uh, elitist thought that was dominating the century in the early 20th century. That kind of shows up in this book. So no one should be surprised by that. Um, his two major novels, um, both of which are about a parish priest uh, who combats evil and despairs in the and despair in the world, <laughs> to use the Wikipedia Wikipedia phrase. Uh, this came uh, to the English speaking world in, I believe, nineteen thirty six when it was translated, or um, thirty nine yeah, maybe when it was thirty eight, thirty nine, thirty eight, yeah. yes, yeah, like that. When it was translated into English and then brought our way. That's about all I'll do in the background right now. Sean, you've read this before. I'm, I'm curious, what was it? 
that stood out for you initially? And to give you a chance to think, I'll just say that one of the reasons this book was chosen is, yes, because you like it, but also because it got requested a lot. It's actually one of the ones that has shown up the most in my inbox and on chats, you know, Facebook chats and so forth over the years. Um, And I find that very interesting because it's kind of a book in which, well, not a lot happens, right? Like I don't, there's a lot happening um, subtextually and in between the lines in between the the diary entries, it seems like there's a lot happening, but it is not a plot driven story. Right. So for you, what stood out as something that, that made you really like this book and um, made you feel like it was worth discussing? Uh, Yeah. I'd even add to some of the comments you just made that this is a book that has not only come uh, been brought to our attention multiple times, but always consistently appears on lists of you know greatest mm. Christian novels, best spiritual works. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a. Uh, I don't know who these people are, but apparently there are a lot of them. <laughs> uh, USA Today the best that, spiritual book of the century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me in reading this book, and uh, I read it in graduate school when I was. I was doing a lot of study of Catholic novelists, 20th century Catholic novelists at the time. And uh, there are, if you read fiction by Catholic authors, um, you often meet priest characters. But uh, this was one of the most, I mean, I, I guess I can, I can say honest looks at the, the work and vocation of the priesthood. And I'm hesitant to say, to make that claim too boldly, because I don't know (laughs) ultimately what it's like to be a priest. Yeah. None of us are priests for the record. (laughs) Uh, But this was a, this was a book that seemed to say things that might dissuade people from becoming priests while at the same time, uh, a book that seems to have great respect for the vocation Uh, Mm. because you could have one or the other. Uh, you could have someone who just hates the idea of, you know, a priesthood or a clergy or organized religion or whatever, sure. uh, and painting a, a dreary picture of what it's like to be a priest. Uh, or you could have a glamorized, romanticized version of of what that might be like. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is neither of those things. So I, I want to add, none of us, not, not only are none of us priests, none of us are also Catholic. So we're coming at it from a bit of an outsider's perspective. Now we have, we are part of religious traditions. And as many of our listeners are that appreciate the ideas that are going on in this book and the role of the priesthood and the complicated, how complicated that role is and how difficult it can be. And so I think these contemplations that are happening in this diary uh, can be appealing to people who just care about the notion of faith or leadership or uh, clergy in general. Yeah. And I think there's something more universal even than, than the priesthood here, because it's this idea that uh, a, a great work of service can be done through a lot of quiet suffering and struggle and humiliation uh, Mm -hmm. and not just through uh, glamorous, uh, or profound uh, public acts that when you uh, regard or accolade or uh, dramatic, you know, martyrdom, uh, that there's a kind of quiet, uh, 
ongoing martyrdom that's possible for for all people and this mm. the person experiencing here just happens to be a priest so heidi that is very true right like we value that notion and yet it makes for a complicated experience for a novel yeah. because quietness and you know martyrdom makes a great novel right <laughs> you know big sweeping act dramatic relationships and conflicts and all those sorts of things make for great novels yeah people who are quietly going about their business in a dutiful way and suffering quietly along the way don't always make for great novels yeah this guy's Um, not a fugitive nobody's hunting him nobody's searching for anything (laughs) right and there's not really even like any kind of real big familial drama like in the gilead like in marilyn robinson's books or Wendell berry or something right um so heidi for you what makes this book you know you said before you came on before we started recording that you really like it yeah. And you're not, but you're, maybe you were saying something like you're also not sure exactly what to say about it. So I'm not, I'm paraphrasing there. I don't know if you said right. that exact phrase. What do you like about it? But what makes it complicated or difficult for you at the same time? I, I really like it. Um, I think part of I, what I was saying to you is that I do find it a little bit hard to follow probably right. because I, right. I don't know exactly what rural like French rural life is like. And so I'm trying to read, there's a whole lot of subtext that seems a bit assumed on the part of our narrator that we would know what certain things are like. And I don't. You do enjoy French wine and chateaus though. I sure do. (laughs) I surely do. Um, And there's every time the wine is mentioned, like when he made that little (laughs) comment about local wine and how, if you take it out of its local context, it's not as good. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is something I can do. Um, You parked up. (laughs) um, I sure did. I "I want some of that. Let's go back to France. Um, Close reads France. Right? right. Oh man, I love that idea so much. Twenty twenty seven. Um, there you go. So I, but I, I love it. I think that so much of the novel is an interior story, like the story of a soul, and um, and so in a sense, one thing I really love, but it took me several like tens of pages to get <laughs> this, and then I had to like go back and reread is that he is he is a bit of an unreliable narrator but in a very opposite way than unreliable narrators generally are uh in general unreliable narrators we we can't believe them it's a technical literary term right we can't believe what they're saying but there's enough clues within the context and within the text that we can figure it out but most unreliable narrators are unreliable in that they say something favorable about themselves and yet they are uh, the opposite is true. Mm. They're usually defending themselves. They don't know themselves in the sense that they are, are trying to present a more favorable picture than is actually true. This is the opposite, right? Mm. This narrator is telling us how he has this posture of, I think at least this far into the novel, true humility that, he is presenting himself less favorably than he truly is. And, and, and it took me a while to catch on to that. And then I had to go back and reread. And I think that's probably one of the sweetest things to me about this novel so far. Um, and I'm, I'm really loving it. And I find it very like comforting and soothing to read the story of a person who thinks more little of himself than, but actually does have a great soul and mm. in an ordinary life. And I think I love it because of that, but it, it took me a bit to figure that out. 
And then mm. I had to read it differently. So this is my first time reading it too. And it's difficult to figure out, for lack of a better phrase, to your point, who to trust. Right. And not in the sense that people are out there trying to lie to you and like the book is trying to be deceive you. But even when you know you get these long conversations with, you know, maybe another clergyman or like, you know, someone his superior or something like that. And the guy is perhaps giving like almost what amounts to a lecture or some kind of sage advice. And it's very like axiomatic kind of where it's, there's like punchy lines and bits of wisdom and proverbs and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to figure out, does the book want us to take that advice and that wisdom and those acts, you know, those axioms and, and the proverbs as truth. And so like, we're supposed to assume that this person has the wisdom or does it want us to not take them that way? Are we supposed to push back against it? And that's been a, a kind of a confounding experience. Mm hmm while reading it. Did you feel the same way, Heidi? I did. With these long conversations? So um, that first long conversation about, you know, the church needs workers, right? (laughs) Um, And I, I was like three pages in before I'm like, I love this. This is so, (laughs) this is so good. But I wasn't, I I thought at the beginning that, that this, that his interlocutor was an antagonist. And so it took me a bit to, to catch on. And then I went back and reread it. And so to your yeah. point, I really like the word confounding. I feel like this novel is subverting my expectations, but in doing so it's catechizing me in a way because I'm finding myself kind of having to continually humble myself before it and realize like this is a this is a book about a man who is better than he thinks he is. And I, even I have prejudged and and that was hmm. is humbling to me and so i can see as i'm reading like i'm being i'm being catechized in such a beautiful spiritual way that i, I agree with sean it transcends it is a catholic novel about a priest it transcends that but in order to understand it you have to fully enter into his catholic experience um and uh so it's both and i just i just really like it hmm. for that reason but it is a bit confounding, I think, on a literary level. And that yeah. I think I love. Sean, do you have, as someone who has read this before, do you have any, um, I guess, advice for those of us who are reading this for the first time in, her, in terms of how to approach the book? I mean, you know what's coming, but I also feel like, you know, we're not about to get, you know, he's not about to, you know, like be sneaking children out of Paris during yeah, know, right. the invasion uh, of the Nazis or something. So. I although that's probably a good book. <laughs> <laughs> I'd read that book. Uh I yeah. think we we've already we've already pointed out the fact that uh not not much happens in terms of conventional plot structure. And even in the absence of outstanding or standout plot developments. I think we're our instinct is often to anticipate those plot developments, uh, and so sure, yeah. Like, like Heidi said, I just why they use which the is why they're thing. used. Yeah, that's right. You know, when he uh, when he has his first lengthy encounter with the older uh, priest, um, we're Torsi. all trying to avoid saying names. Yeah. right? I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, just I honestly don't even know which is myself. which. I'm just going to be honest. I, 
I, I don't know, know which one is which. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, Sean, sorry I interrupted. Uh, no, that's yeah. Uh, I even even this second read through, uh, you know, I have my initial reaction. Just the way he comes off is, oh, th- uh, this is an antagonist. But as we see them interact more, the nature of their relationship develops uh, in front of us. And I think even even the narrator is trying to f- <laughs> figure out. Is this man a good man? Uh, and he says at one point, how oh, he's, I think he's proud. I think he has pride. But uh, even that, he initially mentions as a kind of negative, but his view uh, you know, evolves there too. And so we, I think we try and guess about the traditional roles that characters are going to play and the kinds of uh, developments that are likely to happen because they usually happen. And I think you might be better served as you read this novel to sort of really try and enter into the priest's own experience where uh, he feels he has so little uh, worldly experience that he's very bad at anticipating and predicting what people will do. And so he really is in this position where he just has to sort of take things as they come. And, uh, and we're probably better off if we can content ourselves with doing that too. And I find still uh, what I would call a young man. <laughs> and, and I find that that is my experience in life. You know, I'm in the middle of a situation where I really just cannot for the life of me guess with any kind of certainty how it's going to resolve, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of interpersonal conflict or, uh, you know, a, a bigger circumstance that uh, is you know, problematic for whatever reason. Uh, I haven't lived through enough of those kinds of crises to be able to reliably say, oh, well, there are only seven ways this could go. And, <laughs> and here's the one that's most likely this time. Okay, so I've been thinking about how to approach the conversations on this book. And we've only read two chapters, so it limits us a little bit. Right. But I want to, I want to, let's, let me ask this. Heidi, I'll ask you this first. What themes or ideas via repetition or whatever means Bernanos uses seem to be emerging through these first chapters mm. as things that we need to keep our eye on and account for and like go along for the con- contemplative ride with? Like, what does he seem to be trying to draw out most? Um, I think that that can help us as we move forward, both with our conversations and also giving people something to grasp onto while they're reading. Because in a book where you usually your plot is the thing that, or something related to the character's motivations or drive is the thing you kind of latch onto, right? That carries you through the book. We'd have less of that here, at least less clearly. So maybe some of the themes and, and ideas that it's contemplating are what we can most grasp onto. So for you, I'm, giving you like about 30 seconds of thought time here, right. uh, which, what things would you, uh, would you say we should latch on to grasp onto? Yeah, I think, um, two things that may be connected, but feel a little bit like separate threads to me, um, are what Sean, you brought up earlier, this idea of what the church calls a white martyrdom, which is usually mm-hmm. a- attributed to, the monastic life, but can take place in a lay person's life um, or a priestly life for sure. Uh, And that is that there's two forms of martyr. Well, three, but um, the red martyrdom, which is a martyrdom of blood when you die, uh, 
when your blood is shed for the gospel for Christ. But and then a white martyrdom is one that's lived out daily, like in an ordinary life uh, of continually dying to the flesh, the world, and the devil, and coming alive to Christ and laying down your life in that way. Uh, and again, in um medieval tradition, that white martyrdom was connected to a monastic life. Um, but I think we're seeing a white martyrdom in uh, connected to the priestly vocation here as well, um, in a very specific way, because we also have a, a sick priest, like his body mm-hmm. is very sick. And, um, you know, that that feels like maybe a little bit more predictable than some of the other plot <laughs> elements. Um, and in a, a really beautiful way, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Um, yeah. Um, and so that the idea of white martyrdom is a theme that's emerging. Um, and then also this apparent, and I use that word intentionally, apparent contradiction between a life of action and a life of contemplation that's presented specifically by um, de Torcy um, and uh, is being contemplated by our narrator. Um, and, uh, and, and that, I think it, the question that's being raised by that is de Torsi right? Is there a real, is, is there a, um, a conflict between those two or can they be united in some way in, um, in a mystical or practical way? Um, and lived out in that ordinary life. And, I, and then I also think the beauty of an ordinary life. Uh, that's unknown to its liver, right? Which is why we have our narrator's a better man than he know he is. It's unknown yeah. to him at this point that his life um, may be more spiritually and um, actively beautiful than he is aware of. Those are mine. Sean, do you have anything else to add to that? Uh, not, not anything entirely different. I think the that question of vocation is is going to run throughout the novel. Uh, de Torsi tells the priest that he probably would have made a better monk than a priest. He's He has the, the disposition, uh, the monastic disposition, but he says, you're, you're in this now. And he makes some, even some prophetic statements about maybe how long he, he will have to do this kind of work, but he says, you know, wherever you, you are now, run the race to the end. Uh, and the priest has, so the priest is being, being told from a number of quarters. And uh, then the last know, lecture, uh, that the Torsi, uh, gives the last, uh, like, <laughs> it, is kind of, it is a lecture, right? <laughs> uh, he uh, he sort of loses sight of the priest, and he's just talking uh, out of his own uh, pain and, and trials and experience. But uh, he he brings up uh, you know, the the kinds of priests who just like to preach feel good messages, and uh, uh, there are the uh, the uh, the local uh, the local nobility also has an opinion about uh, you know, how how involved in everybody's life the priest should be uh and then the priest has this friend from seminary who's been writing him letters and who's apparently uh left the priesthood abandoned the priesthood for a reason that is not yet clear uh so there are all sorts of questions about what the importance of a person being suited in a particular way to their task and then obviously specifically the task of the priesthood 
Um, is there one kind of good priest? Uh, or are there, uh, yeah. is there more than one kind of good priest is a question that, uh, the novel keeps uh, inviting us to ask, I think. The theme yeah, of poverty keeps, well, I was just going to say, the theme of poverty keeps coming up. Yeah. And uh, Bernanos himself, he was going to go into the priesthood. You know, he in the introduction, it talks about this a little bit. Right, he was going to go into the priesthood, yeah. went to seminary, ended up having six children, having a family, not having a lot of money, kind of being always on the verge of, I don't know if it was, I don't know if I would say, poverty i don't know if they would define it that way but the book talks about poverty a lot right. and even the value of poverty um and and the, he's contemplating it quite a bit like is it better to be is it just better to have nothing um can you be happier you know like all those sorts of things so what what role do you think that theme plays in the question, the questions that you're talking about regarding vocation, Sean. Uh, it, Could you give maybe, me a ten thousand word uh, thesis on that? <laughs> Given enough time, probably. Uh, I don't know that it's entirely clear yet uh, at the point that we've read to, but uh, even there, he's he's worried or concerned about. Uh, financial matters and whether it's uh, incumbent upon him to be financially savvy, even when he has no money. Uh, he looks at some of the other priests that, that get together and, uh, and he notes that they too uh, are living in relative poverty and that they seem content to live in poverty. And yet they still are very, uh, concerned about and knowledgeable about money matters. And, uh, and he's caught in this place where he wonders if that is even a worthwhile enterprise or if it's something that he needs to be caring more about than he cares about the things of this world, uh, because uh, he has all of his parishioners must live in this world. And so what, what to, how much you should care about money and in what way you should care about money and, and how should someone with the care of many souls instruct those souls to care about money. <laughs> Seems like a, a question that's ongoing. Right. Well, especially I think in its context of French peasant life and the 20th century, right? Like that yeah. there's, there's a global experience of deprivation and cataclysmic change and the, the priest is then called to poverty, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he doesn't want his poverty to make him look prideful. Like he's trying to look poor so people will care for him, right? Like he doesn't want to be seen as poor, but not because he's prideful, but uh, excuse me, not because he's trying to hide his poverty, but because he doesn't want to wear his poverty like a badge of honor as a priest. Yeah, that's right. And, and that is just such a different mindset towards poverty than what I've encountered mm -hmm. in a novel before. And I've been kind of thinking about that. It makes a lot of sense, of course. Um, and he's the same way about his health. Like he's not trying to hide it because he's um, for the same reason. 
He doesn't want it to look like he's trying to look like a martyr. (laughs) So he's trying to hide his, his suffering, not because he doesn't want to experience it, but because he doesn't wear and wear like a badge of honor. And the awkwardness is increased. And I imagine Bernanos is aware of this and doing this on purpose, but uh, because this period in the 20th century is really a time when a growing consensus, there's a growing consensus that poverty can and should be eliminated, uh, which is distinct from the idea that uh, the suffering of the poor should be alleviated or that the poor should be defended and aided. Uh, there's this turning to a, a different idea that poverty should be uh, eradicated, which then yeah. makes an an impoverished existence, uh, stigmatizes an impoverished existence. Mm. Uh, mm. And so that's a growing sort of social awkwardness worldwide in the early 20th century, early 19th century. And leads to a great yeah, deal of, yeah. yeah, 20th, yeah, a great <laughs> deal of uh, political conflicts. Right. Within countries such as Russia and between countries. And of course it has the bit about how Russian literature is what it is because they knew how to do without things. Um, Snow, so, right? Because it's so cold up there. Yeah, right, yeah. So I just read today Russian that, that uh, North Carolina, at least Charlotte, is going to have its first year on record without having any snow between October and May. Whoa. So since yeah. 1878. So side note, but I, I guess I guess we could never so you don't write have truly Russian great soul. literature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, I want to talk a little bit about the um, the the kind of diary aspect of this. And I, you know, let's just kind of keep this. I don't know. This episode doesn't need to go too long because we need to. We haven't gotten very far. We haven't gotten very far. So, just to, there are a lot of novels that have this that use this approach in various ways. Even books that have great propulsive action do this. Um, lots of middle grade books, in fact, do this even, hmm. um, which are obviously plot oriented. Heidi, you are really into um, memory novels. Mm-hmm. And this is a memory novel in the sense that he is writing after the fact, but it's not really a memory novel in the sense that it's not very far after the fact. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so he's kind of, it's a memory novel, but it's also a, it just happened to me novel. <laughs> so he's kind of responding in the moment. So I'm curious for you, like this, this format, what works about this format and, and in what ways is this particular version of the diary format or whatever you want to call it uh, unique? Yeah. I've never read a novel like this before. And maybe this is just my lack of, experience in reading. Um, but I, I, the fragmented aspect of it again, kind of contributed to this, like my, a bit of like a sense of disequilibrium that I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast that as I was reading it, that kind of breaks off in the middle of things and it doesn't com- always finish his thoughts, which is just like, yeah, right. Like a real moments diary. Just end. Yeah. yeah. It, and it's, that's that's just like a real journal or a real diary. And mm-hmm. so it's it it fits. I think it works beautifully, but it is a bit 
disorienting. I feel like I'm kind of trying to keep up sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same um, way. And that is, I I think it works really well, especially his own thoughts on his own thoughts, right? He's like, I'm writing this. I don't really yeah. know why. He we're, we're having this kind of unfolding. It is a memory novel, um, as you're saying, and it's also just like a very introspective, very deeply personal. Like I feel like if someone was to pick up my journal, they would have the same experience that I'm having. Like, oh, I feel like I'm getting to know this person, but at the same time, I have no idea what's going on yeah. in her life. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's like thoughts about thoughts. Um, and very and that- rarely does someone who's keeping a diary, like if you read even, like I read Alan Rickman's he's either just listing the facts of the day or there's big <laughs> gaps between yeah. the big entries. Right. 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 Um, and so it takes us, the form of it takes us even more deeply in than into this priest um, in a way, almost even more deeply than the content of it. Right. Because we get hmm. to know how his mind works. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm reading another novel right now called works of mercy by sally thomas and it has some similarities another catholic novel about an ordinary life and uh but it's and and it's first person and it is a memory novel it's beautiful i love i really love it and i'm highly i highly recommend it um but it's written in a very straightforward style like it starts at the beginning and then just kind of goes until it stops and um and that works beautifully uh, as well, but this, the form of it, the fragmented style tells you how this person thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that I think takes you even more deeply into his soul, but it also is more confusing than reading a straightforward narrative. So it creates this really interesting kind of literary dynamic, um, as well as a psychological one. Yeah. And there's, there is, he does say that he is not keeping this diary for the reasons that some people keep a diary as a simple record of things that, that happen, uh, but that he has some kind of project and right? he's determined to keep this diary for a year uh, in order to accomplish something that is a little vague still at this point, maybe to think more about how he thinks or to think more about the experiences that he's having. Uh, and so there's, there's that too. There is an organizing principle maybe that hasn't, entirely been revealed to us yet it's it strikes me that like you know how so the other guy said maybe you were better off being a monk it's like a kind of a monk like exercise to do this yeah to be like to hmm. be after a sort of like self-awareness or um to empty your mind it's it's a meditative contemplative activity that kind of mirrors what you know, the monastic life might be like. And so it seems like he is trying to empty his thoughts to get after to, to like, I don't know how, how to put it exactly. He's, to, he's like emptying his thoughts so he can see them. So he can, uh, clarify them and like understand himself, um, yeah. in a way that is not, it would just very, very difficult to do, especially for anyone who has any sort of like, thought, like, who's self-aware in a way that is problematic. <laughs> like, in the, in the way it can be a struggle for you. Yeah. Like, Lewis talks, like, C.S. Lewis writes about this in Surprised by Joy. Like, the way self-awareness, and I don't remember the exact phrase he uses, can be a struggle. It can keep you from being in the moment, from being truly contemplative. And so you have to empty that out 
to enter into true contemplation. And that's something that maybe the monastic life allows more than the, the being the priest of a small parish where you are, you are um, having to deal with the mon- the mundane, you know, the everyday um, dealing with poverty and all that. And you don't have the opportunity to, and people, other people's struggles and you're not struggles and you don't have the opportunity to be like so focused in the way that the monastic life can offer. And so it's like a, there's a monastic exercise that seems seems to be, it's like a monastic exercise, not that it is a monastic yeah. exercise. And maybe there's even an element of confession here as a kind of internalized uh, formal confession. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, should we just wrap it up here? Uh, for this week and then um i think so the soil we did a little uh, fertile yeah yeah we did exactly we did a little preview next week we're going to do chapters three and four um and sean we're going to count on you to uh to to guide us as the experienced one here Mm -hmm. heidi and i will ask questions we'll be confounded and you will have to uh you'll have to you know be our guide i'm gonna have to keep a diary now about my struggles uh guiding you through this yeah i think I think that would be essential. I think we should and we should then publish that. <laughs> yeah. And then we um, want to read it. <laughs> diary of a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> a Florida, literary... Florida man diary. Of a That's podcaster. right. Florida man diaries. I think if someone picked up Florida man diaries, it would be they would be expecting would something be very different seller. than what than what they'd get from yeah. from the diaries of Sean Johnson while he takes us through diary of a country priest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they'd be quite prepared for the meta aspects of yeah. such a diary. They're just looking for more alligators riding lawnmowers. Heidi, I'm going to give you the last chance to, or the chance to give us some final thoughts, maybe ask a couple final questions and then, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. I, I think I'm looking for more about these young, this young woman that he's mentioned, the governess that yeah. seems intriguing to me. Um, he said this, this section felt like a lot of setup for these characters and I don't know how to fit the characters in yet, partly because I don't know much about French life. And so I feel like if this was taking place in England in the mid 20th century, I'd already have some expectations in place. It's a little different here (laughs) because I'm learning not just about the spiritual life of this man, but the culture, um, of this country. Right. And specifically, yeah. Um, in, um, in France, we just lost David, his computer was very low on battery. And so we've all been kind of like anxiously awaiting his dropping out like a ghost. So now he's gone. Um, so, uh, that's right. Bye-bye David. Um, so that's what I'm, so I'm orienting myself to the book in that way, as well as in all these other ways. And I'm finding it a really great challenge. Um, as you brought up though, earlier, Sean, um, in spite of all these kind of elements that are a bit disorienting and subverting my expectations of a novel, uh, I'm still finding it so universally human mm-hmm. and so relatable. And, um, and so that those two elements, like this, this kind of way that I feel a bit disoriented in it. And yet also I'm finding this universality of spiritual questioning and life um, and human emotion and disappointment and all of those things are so universal. And so I just like really am enjoying the unity of those two elements. So I'm looking forward to more of that. How about yeah. you? Uh, the same. I one of the one of the things that I really enjoy about the novel, uh, 
if enjoy is the right word, because sometimes it's really painful and awkward. It's just the the very real uh, pettiness and uh, and misunderstandings that uh, Bernanos is able to notice in human behavior uh, and then uh, recreate here so vividly or so believably. Uh, you know, the things like uh, that misunderstanding where the merchant uh, offers to send him three bottles of wine and then charges him for them. And, uh, and then he, he thought he was doing someone a favor by buying a cask of wine. And it turns out the guy had left his, his job with the, uh, you know, with the wine merchant and somebody else got the commission. And then he bottled all his wine too early and it spoiled. And it's just, uh, very human, awkward, uh, interactions and uh, fumbles uh, that uh, are certainly reminiscent of real mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> real situations I've also been in. Right. Right. And how he feels so unequal to the tasks of daily life and so overwhelmed. I yeah. loved that sentence yeah. that he said, I, in writing this diary, I realized how consumed by I am by the hundred little petty details of daily life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's true. I relate to that, that oh, yeah. sense of, I think I am full of great thoughts, but really I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, I'm so overwhelmed by like little things Yeah, and, um, and then DeTorsi addresses that directly in talking about how, um, hold on, let me, let me, I think I have it right here. He says, and so the state, uh, this is on page 50, um, and he's talking about the state, but I think that this relates to all of us in our lives, certainly for me and as a family. Um, and so the state has begun to make the best of a bad job, looking after kids, bandaging cripples, washing out mm-hmm. dirty linen, hotting up soup for the disabled, delousing decrepit old men, but with one eye on the clock, wondering when there'll ever be a chance to attend to its own business. And I feel like that often, right? When am I going to write my book? When am I going to do all these? And I, when I just have to like take my kids places and go to the dentist and... <laughs> Like uh, figure out my laundry and Jack needs his work pants. And like, it's just all of these details of daily life that feel like they're the distraction, but they are the work. Right. And, and this, to your point that you made earlier, I may not understand the intricacies and pressures and hierarchies and social aspects and political aspects of French peasant life and the, 20th century but i know that i know that thing right and that is just a universal human experience and i like to read a novel about that yeah uh, you have those moments so often as a teacher uh, i just want to give some brilliant life-changing lectures and uh have some mind-blowing uh discussion but instead i've got a great papers and uh correct spelling and uh get onto that kid for talking in the back of the class. Uh, why can't we just get all that out of the way so we can do the big stuff? Uh, when, in, yeah, when, as you say, in reality, uh, attending to all those little things is often not the way that we you know, get out the big stuff or uh, just our faithfulness in those little things is, is rewarded by uh, 
God and, and more is done with <laughs> with our little little efforts than we uh, than we could have done on our own. That's true. That's true. And so I, I just I feel like this book is already kind of grabbing me in that that particular place, which is, you know, just life and especially right. middle aged life, which, yes, you are young, but you're <laughs> yeah, you also have five children and a real yeah, job. Right. And, yep, yep. I feel it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, any is that your final thought or do you have anything else that you want to add to the mix or guide our readers on? I think as that's we're it. heading just into this the, section, just just try and enjoy the next two chapters. OK. All right. Well, you got it. All right. Well, thank you so much. We miss David. Wish we could get his final thoughts on the book, but he's probably heading back to the shop to get his charger so that he can do, you know, his real life. Yep. Because you know what? Finding your charger is one of those hundred (laughs) things of daily life. I feel like the amount of energy I put into charging my devices, no matter Mm -hmm. how much I complain Mm -hmm. about my devices, is really pathetic. Actually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, for David Kern, for Sean Johnson, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Happy reading. Mm-hmm.